Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my show that tries to bring a uniquely rational perspective to some of today's most complicated issues. Today's guest is Professor John Yu. John is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at uh, UC Berkeley and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. John is a scholar of constitutional law and a prolific author. He served in all three branches of government. He's been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas after he graduated from Yale Law School. And best part of all, John is a very good friend of mine. John and I have a great conversation about the investigations of the current president and the previous president, many questions about these and the appropriateness of criminal trials versus political processes in settling those disputes. We'll go into other issues, including separation of powers and a concept we hear quite a bit about, the so-called threat to democracy here in the United States. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. John, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's great to be with you again, Scott. We have a lot of things to talk about. As usual, the law is in the news, uh, maybe more so than than ever. Uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna do something a little bit uh, sort of disconnected in that going through topics that are of interest, certainly to me, hopefully to the uh, the viewers, and we'll see what we can make of them. Number one is. I think the, probably the, the one that's occupying most of the news, and that is the investigations of President Biden and former President Trump, obviously the two leading candidates for president in the current election cycle. And uh, the, the perspective I'm asking for here is, as a layman myself, I'm having trouble uh, sort of figuring out if these things are criminal issues, court system issues, or issues that should be settled in, in the political process. Uh, and if I'm saying that for a variety of reasons. And uh, the, the first sort of part is the judgment, really, of bringing charges or investigations of people who are running for the president of the United States when the election uh, isn't that far in the future. And uh, so maybe you could give a little perspective on historical as well as legal basis for doing that. Uh, Scott, this is a good question because I think in a lot of the media discussion about the various Trump indictments, about the Hunter Biden investigation, uh, people are getting really focused on which charges are being brought, uh, what facts are involved in each case. I I'm prone to this as well. But I think maybe we should t t start by taking a step back and putting this in historical context as you're urging. Uh, until Donald Trump, uh, neither the states or the federal government had ever brought criminal charges against a former president. Trump's the first one. Even Richard Nixon was not indicted, although he was pardoned by Jerry Ford. Even Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was not prosecuted. Uh, we've had presidents who've no doubt done some bad things, but we generally left them alone. And the reason why is because we don't want presidents who have to make the hardest decisions under the toughest circumstances 
for the good of the country to have to worry about, am I going to be criminally investigated and prosecuted for this decision? So we've tried actually to uh, respect the tough job of being president by not second guessing them excessively and holding them personally liable. So that's one principle that uh, basically both parties had followed. Federal and state governments had followed until Donald Trump. That's it, one. It of, seemed, can, can I interrupt yeah. and, and ask a, a question about that, which is, it seems odd to me that there's a concept of president of immunity when you're speaking to the president because you're speaking to the president, yet there's not immunity for the president himself. I, I mean, am I am I wrong in, in thinking this is sort of contradictory as a principle? Well, uh, Scott, you did talk a lot to the president, I know, but you're not immune. <laughs> you didn't get any immunity, actually. <laughs> So there's there's different things. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> because you might think you're immune, but you are not. <laughs> so there's a different things at work here. So there's something called executive privilege, which does cover your conversations directly with the president. Those are uh, protected from being disclosed uh, to Congress, sometimes even to the courts and to most uh, private people. That's different than immunity. What you're talking about with immunity is can you be prosecuted for what you did? Okay. So um, the kind of immunity I'm talking about is not a constitutional immunity. It's not freedom from being. It's actually just what I was thinking of, of a good old-fashioned self-restraint and good judgment. That's what I think we've lost. So uh, I actually think presidents- But there, but there, is, no, there is no rule, is there? That right. a president cannot be criminally charged, right? That's or, right. Or that's that, simply the sort of accepted standard, or is there a legal precedent where that has been no, no. ruled to be inappropriate? No, no, that's a, that's a good point, Scott. It the in fact, um, the Supreme Court hasn't ever had to directly hold on it, but the Federalist Papers talk about a president being prosecuted after they're impeached and removed from office, for example. Um, the Nixon-Watergate tapes case basically is built on the idea that a president could be criminally prosecuted. So there's no constitutional rule that prevents a president from being prosecuted later on for something he or she did while in office. The only immunity that does exist is from uh, presidents being sued civilly. Uh, by civilly, I mean, you know, he, a president... Uh, Trump hurt me in some way as a private citizen. I want to sue him for damages. So the court has said- A civil, a civil lawsuit yeah, a civil rather lawsuit. than a criminal yeah, criminal lawsuit. lawsuit. So the Supreme Court has said presidents are immune from civil lawsuits. And, when, and they gave the reason I gave, because we don't want presidents when they make the hardest decisions. If you think about it, the president should really only have the hardest decisions reserved for him or her. If they're easy decisions, there should be- cabinet secretaries or assistant secretaries who make them. So the toughest decisions have to be the presses. Do we want them to be sitting there thinking, oh, maybe I should you know, do A rather than, maybe I should pick you know, this fighter jet instead of this other fighter jet and worried that someone's going to sue them years later for money. And we don't want them to be risk averse. If you think about, you're a doctor, it's just malpractice, right? Do we, we, we want to have presidential malpractice suits 
the way we have, you know, medical malpractice suits, that the the whole idea of those damages could over deter. But that doesn't mean presidents are immune from criminal lawsuits. It's only because we've had good sense as a people, you know, that presidents have basically said, I'm gonna turn the page on the last president and I'm gonna move forward. I'm not gonna waste my administration criminally prosecuting or pursuing them. And also I think the American people, they understand the presidency is a hard job. They don't demand that past presidents be prosecuted. So we've had until Trump two over two centuries, right? Two hundred and almost two hundred and thirty century two hundred and thirty years of common sense where prosecutors decided to leave ex presidents alone. There's two separate issues in this uh, example. One is a sitting president and one is the former president. The sitting president, uh, I was alluding to this in my uh, in my introduction. It seems that there is a process for uh, investigating or doing something about, uh, or in my way of speaking, settling the issues of misconduct or malfeasance that is serious for a sitting president, and that is a political process called impeachment. Exactly um, right. And, and, and that sort of avoids or at least is a way to settle things. So there, there's so many things to talk about with this in terms of President Trump. Uh, one is that he was impeached after he was removed for office once. Uh, and or at least he had lost the election. And is that is that something that has historical precedent? So Scott, first you're exactly right. And why would right. that even be? Why would that even be done? So Scott, first I was going to say you're exactly right. The founders, however, didn't assume oh all presidents were going to be perfect, uh, that we shouldn't have any kind of remedy against presidential uh, malfeasance. So, but rather than the criminal justice system, as you say, Scott, they looked at impeachment. They did create an extensive system in the Constitution, not just for the president, but for all executive branch officers. And that is, right, the House impeaches by majority vote, and then the Senate tries the impeachment, and they have to remove by a two-thirds vote. And that two-thirds vote was there to make sure that it wasn't partisan, that there was a high consensus that someone ought to be removed from office. Other things about impeachment. It's not criminal. It's not a criminal proceeding. The uh, standard is treason, bribery, which are crimes, or high crimes and misdemeanors. And that phrase was meant to include abuse of power, even including just bad management of the government, stoop, really, really harmful, stupid decisions. The Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton calls them offenses against the body politic. But they're not criminal. The only punishment is removal from office. You're not thrown in jail for being... This is where we did uh, improve upon the British. The British actually used to sometimes execute people who were impeached as successful and then convicted by parliament. But, <laughs> but, the, the, but you're right, Scott. Impeachment is the real me mechanism. And then uh, for a presidential malfeasance. And then the founders, maybe this is charming or naive thought, someone who was impeached would be so ashamed, would be so disdained by society that they wouldn't run off into the frontier never to appear again. 
But see, that, but that answers your question, Scott, about the second impeachment of Donald Trump for January 6th is, and I argued at the time back in 2021, it makes no sense to impeach someone who's already out of office. The punishment is to remove them from office. By the time Congress got its act together, and I think this is the fault of the House in particular, because they did not actually vote in impeachment of Donald Trump until he had left office, it's too late. The, the, he's already been removed. In a way, the American people right, made their judgment Donald, Donald Trump when they decided right. not to reelect him. And so I thought that impeachment could only apply to people who are in office now. I mean, if you could have, you know, retroactive impeachment, as it were, why not impeach Bill Clinton now, too, while around, you know, where we're getting around to it? You know, why not, you know, let's let's impeach Barack Obama, too, even though he's been out of office for a little while. So it doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah, there's probably a long list of presidents. Yeah. yeah. It just it's doesn't sort make of unlimited. sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So, it doesn't make yeah. sense. So what the Federalist Papers talked about was if a president did something that was really criminal and an abuse of power, you would impeach that president. And then once they're out of office you could prosecute them. But you, what you wouldn't do is prosecute a president while they're still in office. First, you that's what impeachment is for. Right. So that brings me a little bit to the other major question to me is, what about the, the idea, the judgment, and even the legality uh, of bringing charges or investigations of candidates who are running for president during the campaign or during the beginning of the campaign. Because, and the reason that's a relevant question to me is because we heard people say they shouldn't be doing that during the Hillary Clinton uh, legal saga of that campaign. We heard, I think it was FBI Director Comey uh, say that it was inappropriate to bring charges in th at that point in time. And now we have full-fledged investigations and charges and trials going on of both the leading candidates, or at least there's discussion of that. W what's, the, w what's the thinking on that? This, this too is unprecedented, what's going on now. Uh, we really haven't had a criminal investigation going on during the pendency of a campaign for the presidency uh, for any serious candidate. Uh, and again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't do it. But it has been, again, like, I think, leaving ex-presidents alone, it's been a matter of self-restraint and good common sense in history. Because you can imagine, if you do start prosecuting people while they're campaigning for office, there'll be such a great temptation right, to help your incumbency by investigating challengers, uh, not just at the White right. House, but in the Senate and the House and so on. And we don't want to become a banana republic where we have seen, you can see it in Europe, you see it and in we Latin America. We may be too America. late for that. <laughs> but that was, that was why we didn't do it before. So the Justice Department used to have a rule that you would not bring charges against somebody while they were running for office. It would roughly be about six months to a year uh, before the election itself. Now, Jim Comey is a terrible example of what to do because uh, first he said, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton 
wasn't going to be prosecuted. That in itself is a you know, violation of Justice Department policy. Justice Department, they might look at you, they might look at me, but if they don't find anything, then they should never say they ever investigated us at all. Because even to say that you were investigated, but not charged, besmirches your reputation and you don't have a chance to respond. So what the department should do is never say anything. So Kobe broke that rule. Then he broke another rule because while the campaign was getting close to the November election back in 2016, he said, oh no, we're reopening the investigation of Hillary Clinton. That knocked her back a few points. And then right before the election, he said, oh no, I don't think anybody would bring charges for what we found Hillary had done. Right? So he broke the rule three times. He made it worse and worse. He was such a politicized and political FBI director. Um, the better rule and, was just I think leave this, Hillary alone, leave Trump alone. And th this brings up one of the uh, one of the key points, which is a conflict of interest in many people's eyes, which is that the Department of Justice works for the administration, the the, the president. Uh, I, I think I'm correct in saying that. Yes. And uh, in the case of investigating the opposition candidate. Uh, is it uh, is it even sort of credible to say that the president, the act, the current president, is not involved in the oversight of the Department of Justice, who is investigating the opponent to the current president? No, in fact, that's constitutionally impossible. Uh, you you right you were right in the beginning of your comment. The Constitution places in the president alone the responsibility to what we call take care that the laws are faithfully executed. This is maybe the core, along with national security, of the president's two most important duties. Everybody who works at the Justice Department is just under the Constitution, an assistant to the president, helping the president carry out the laws, carry out Including the attorney general, Including the course. attorney general. This is very different. The founders designed this on purpose. Uh, there, you know, you have different systems in Europe and Asia where the attorney, sometimes even our states, where the attorney general or law enforcement are separated into some kind of quasi-independent body of government. But our founders chose not to do that. In fact, Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, the reason for that is because we want <clears throat> the executive to be energetic. And if you diffuse power amongst too many people, the government is no longer energetic. And then at the same time, Hamilton said, we want someone to be accountable for law enforcement too. And so if you put it in the president, they'll both be energetic and you can hold him or her responsible. So no, there's no way for Biden to say, oh, I have nothing to do with this investigation and these charges into Trump because ultimately they're done under his name. Constitutional are the charges and the, the investigations are they necessarily cleared by the president directly? Uh, I they that that's just a matter of how this administration may choose to want to do job. But all I have to say is if Biden doesn't want them to happen. He just needs to make one phone call and they will stop immediately. There's no way right. Jack Smith or anybody could conduct any investigation or any prosecution against the will, the wishes of the sitting president. That's constitutionally impossible. So 
Uh, Biden might say, oh, I have nothing to do with it. I wash my hands. But that's not, I don't think that's possible. And it's possible, you know, okay. Garland could say that too. I don't think that's constitutionally possible. They're responsible. Speaking of accountability, uh, accountability and impeachment again, but a little bit differently. I think to, to my surprise as a layman, I've heard a lot of talk about impeachment of cabinet officials like Mayorkas for the border uh, immigration uh, security issue, or even Merrick Garland, the attorney general. This is somehow being threatened or alluded to by uh, the Republicans in the House. Uh, so a couple things about that. Impeaching subordinates of the president, cabinet officials, is there a historical context for that? And the second part of the question is, it seems to me that uh, that makes no sense because, uh, as, as you mentioned, they, they are working directly as assistants to the president. If they are impeached or impeachable because of what they did, shouldn't that mean the president should be impeached? Yeah, I think the, the answer to that is yes. Uh, the Constitution uh, says officers in the United States are subject to impeachment. So it does apply to cabinet officers. We've never impeached uh, and removed uh, someone other than the president. In fact, we've never impeached and removed a president either. But in England at the time of the founding, impeachment was used against subordinate officials. But you're right, actually, Scott. The um, system that Hamilton described means that the responsibility for all those cabinet officers ultimately should be the president's too. So if people in Congress are upset with the way Alejandro Mayorkas is doing his job, then they should hold Biden responsible. Biden can fire Mayorkas anytime. Biden can order Mayorkas to do something different at the border anytime he wants to. Mayorkas is carrying out right the Biden it, it administration seems, yeah. program. Same with same with Garland, right? If Right. And isn't that or would that not be a defense by Mayorkas or Garland or anyone else's that uh, he's a subordinate of the president? He's executing his position on the basis of what he's told to do. I mean, it, it seems to me that it seems odd and misguided to impeach a cabinet official because they're really uh, subjected to the administration above them, which means the president. I mean, I think that what you have, though, is uh, a system that allows you to uh, engage in you know, gradual political punishment, right? but gradual congressional action. So you don't have to immediately impeach the president every time you disagree with the administration. You could start by removing people lower down and okay uh, but the hierarchy but the impeachment is not about a this the impeachment is not or should not be about a disagreement on policy it's it's really malfeasance of the highest order yeah it's abuse it, of i power, assume the same definition of duty it doesn't have to be criminal that's a high crimes and misdemeanors i think also includes at least abuse of power and dereliction and duty dereliction duty i also think it also includes just being really bad at your job. <laughs> there might be people who are completely, you know, have good faith and are people of good. Well, they're just really should not be in the cabinet. 
I, I get that sense with some well, of the people yeah. in the Biden administration and the uh, the the fa- we're laughing. We're both laughing because we we've both been people. in the yeah. in government. Yeah, so we know lots of people. <laughs> we know how wide, how broadly applicable that can we, we be. We know lots of people should have been impeached, except Congress was too busy. <laughs> right, but that's but that's I, I part of small... it. Yeah. But, but that's part right. of it is not being impeached. Again, it's not criminal. It's the decision by the Congress that you you know some officer has committed some offense against the against the people. And that can include abuse of power, dereliction duty, failure to just carry out your job well. Right. But it seems to me that I'm not sure the incompetence fits in high crimes and misdemeanors. It's like, but it's maybe more, I'm it's just more like uh, being gross negligence. Yeah, it's just a really, 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 really bad incompetence. Yeah. Okay. I have a small question, like the tactical issue that's bothered me as someone who uh, watches government in action. Congress often subpoenas people, whether they will subpoena presidents or cabinet officials or whatever. Yet it seems to me that subpoenas are often disregarded by people subpoenaed to testify. Mm-hmm. What? Why? Why? How is that happening? I- either there's a subpoena power with accountability if you disregard it or there's not what what is the real story on subpoenas by congress it's another good question and it does go back to the fundamentals of the separation of powers we were just talking about uh congress can issue a subpoena courts of course issue subpoenas but it's the executive branch that carries them out so for example if Congress were to subpoena you or me and refuse, and we refused, Congress could then hold us in contempt. But then the executive branch would have to prosecute us for contempt. And so what's happened is particularly when Congress wants to subpoena executive branch officials, the president will tell the judge, this happened really uh, most prominently in the Obama administration because Congress subpoenaed Eric Holder, the attorney general. And President Obama and Eric Holder were like, well, we're just not going to enforce that. Uh, That's a big problem, as you say, Scott, because the ability to subpoena witnesses from the executive branch is core to Congress being able to conduct oversight over the executive branch and make basic decisions about writing new laws or the budget. So there's another kind of subpoena power, but it's not been used and... I think about a century, maybe more, where Congress could hold you in contempt for disobeying a subpoena and send out its own officers to try to grab you, uh, like the sergeant at arms and people like this. Uh, and there used to be actually a jail of sorts in the Capitol where you could be brought if you refused to obey a subpoena. But I don't think Congress really has the guts to do that anymore. And so Congress just relies on uh, the president and the Justice Department to really enforce subpoenas. But as you're right, you're right, Scott. If you're a cabinet officer and Congress is giving you a hard time, right, you could take, you might get some, you might think of the reputational harm by, of being held in contempt by Congress. But you also know your president and your friend, the attorney general, they're probably not going to enforce it against you. And so you can get away with not obeying a subpoena these days. 
Let me pick up on the theme of separation of powers in our government, which is, of course, a fundamental part of uh, checks and balances, uh, stopping our government from becoming, uh, uh, you know, an autocracy. Uh, and that is what we've seen lately with the proliferation of executive orders, but even more uh, in an amorphous sense, the expansion of power of the executive branch to legislate. And here I'm talking about some of the more recent things that we've seen. Of course, this has been going on for many administrations, but uh, lately we hear about uh, new policies on gas stoves, on, on fuel efficiencies of cars, phasing out uh, conventional combustion engines, uh, just abruptly stopping or abruptly starting oil exploration, changes in light bulbs. Th these are done by the executive branch uh, lately, and that seems sort of uh, in conflict with legislative processes typically being done by the legislative branch. What What is this? Uh, is this a new phenomenon, or is this just an expansion of power, or is it simply always been going on and we just haven't noticed it? So uh, uh, that's a good question and a good point because uh, there have always been executive orders from the days of President Washington, but the problem has become much more severe in the last few years. And so let me explain, there's two kinds of executive orders. There are the kinds where the president is exercising some power that he has under the constitution directly. So uh, a good example is uh, President Truman desegregating the armed forces. That's just, right, he's the commander in chief. He can decide whether to have uh, segregation or not at that time. This is before Brown versus Board of Education when segregation was still somehow legal. And President Truman issued, you know, that's an executive order. That's an exercise of his power. That's not what most executive orders are. Most executive orders are um, exercises of power that Congress has given to the executive branch. So for example, uh, Congress might say, we want you to make the air clean. We're not sure exactly what the right range for certain pollutants are. So the executive branch, you study the problem and then you issue some kind of executive order saying, you can't have some kind of sulfide in the air within a certain range, something technical. So th these are things that, it, let me get this straight though, th These you're saying that these are explicit requests from Congress to the executive branch, presumably you're talking about agencies, yes. to issue policies uh, rather than have Congress make laws, yes, because Congress about these policies, yes, and this is some. This is uh, and the reason I'm saying this is more severe is that this really did not get going until the New Deal. This is really FDR, and this is FDR. Woodrow Wilson was the godfather of this, but he didn't get to put it fully into practice. Wilson got the idea from the Germans. He thought the Germans ran a wonderful government. I thought I think Woodrow Wilson has really been a terrible president for us, uh, but FDR is really the one who put it into place permanently through the New Deal, and so this we call it you know, this delegation of lawmaking power from Congress to the executive branch, because Congress is either too technically 
not competent to make those decisions or they require expertise, investigation, um, or Congress could would take too long. So, uh, or they view it as not politically that's what we, uh, tenable. That's for what them. we have discovered. Yeah. Political scientists would say now, or they don't want to take responsibility for hard decisions, right? Like COVID, for example, right. what to do with and COVID. It, right? And of course, by definition, when an agency makes a decision under the authority of the executive branch in which it functions, the new executive branch can, can, or I'm asking a question can or cannot immediately reverse all those agency policies. So the thing is, usually these delegations of law, uh, there's something called the Administrative Procedure Act, which sets out a, a procedure for how the executive branch issues these regulations. And so they, it usually takes about a year, year and a half. And so to undo it, it also takes about a year, a year and a half. Now. Uh, the problem with the executive orders you're talking about, Scott, is, and I got to say, you know, President Biden's on some kind of great all-time losing streak because he's been really smacked back by this Supreme Court. Uh, you have the example of the, the effort to cancel most student loans in the country that was struck down by the Supreme Court. You had two during COVID uh, effort to have mandatory vaccines in all workplaces and an effort to stop to just suspend all uh, evictions in the country all struck down by the supreme court uh, and so what biden has done essentially is to say okay to you uh, congress has given me some power in public health or congress has given me some power in collecting student loans you didn't tell me in that statute i couldn't do other things so unless you tell me i can't do it I'm going to do it. So this is almost as if Biden is saying, not only should Congress delegate power to me to issue certain kinds of regulations, but you also got to pass a lengthy list of things I'm not allowed to do too. This is upside down. And the Supreme Court has struck this down multiple times now. And in fact, they've created okay. something. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's quite a revolution in... Uh, the way the courts and the executive branch interact called the major questions doctrine, uh, where for the last several years now, the court has said, unless Congress clearly gave the president the power to handle some kind of major question, some kind of question that has major economic or social or political importance, we're not going to assume Congress gave you that power. In fact, we're going to assume Congress didn't. Uh, so, one this is similar to the 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 really the whole founding of the country where if there's not an explicit authority given to the government then it's assumed not to exist yes not it, to exist yes some people said that that this is an effort by the conservative is the conservatives on the court who've created this doctrine it's an effort to return us to founding principles right as you say scott we're a constitution of limited federal power and so the idea is when Congress gives power to the executive branch, that's also assumed to be limited to Congress isn't just saying you have the right. So you hear the, the, the leading case is a case called West Virginia versus EPA, where right, Congress says to the executive branch, we want you to make certain decisions about how to make the air cleaner. And in the course of doing that, Biden said, well, what I'm going to do is solve climate change. <laughs> I'm going to issue 
rules for every power plant in the country, every use of electricity in the country. And the court said when the Clean Air Act was passed in the 1970s, no one had ever heard of climate change. There's no way Congress would have thought it was giving you any power to right regulate all energy production and use in the country. That's a major question that Congress has to decide. So it's also uh, behind it is not just limiting the powers of the government. It's also saying most domestic policy questions are up to Congress. And so you, Congress, make the decisions clearly in the law. Don't just try to get so out of it. just to be clear. Yeah, by giving it to the president. The check, the check on this expanded power only comes when someone files a lawsuit. This is not just uh, someone saying, well, wait a second. No, you can't do that. This is an actual lawsuit that ends up going up to the Supreme Court. That's the only way this is really stopped, ultimately. Yes. I mean, this this doctrine only works if someone brings suit against the government. And so uh, there might be difficulty finding plaintiffs. There might be a lot of social pressure uh, not to sue. Uh, it might be hard. You know, well, sometimes industries get other benefits from the government that they don't want to right. you know, bring into doubt by uh, attacking the right. government in other areas. But right, or they may get subsidies. Everybody likes to get a subsidy. So, in fact, it was very hard to find a plaintiff uh, to challenge President Biden's a student loan cancellation because right everybody who was getting their loans canceled they got no problems and the courts have also said you can't just sue because you're a taxpayer and you're paying for all of it you have to have some special harm and so it actually was standing yeah yeah, yeah so uh, yeah standing exactly so the Biden administration actually tried, quite cleverly tried to prevent any judicial review of that program they failed but they okay. tried yeah, they fit. That brings up uh, just a couple of quick things about the Supreme Court itself. And this, again, uh, goes into the separation of powers. You hear a lot about uh, the ethics oversight of Supreme Court justices. And there's an ongoing uh, debate about that. Uh, that is, does Congress, as a separate branch, have the authority to have any kind of ethical oversight of Supreme Court justices. Uh, and that 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 is also sort of a sub-branch of the question about Congress having the power, I think, uh, to change the number of Supreme Court justices or possibly even to put term limits on Supreme Court justices. Uh, what, what, get, let's, uh, let me hear your opinions on these, the, these issues and uh, Clarify my mis, uh, misconceptions. No, no, I don't think you have any misconception at all there, actually. I think you got the right answer. Uh, maybe uh, the way you to put this in political context first is, you know, we're seeing right now for much of this year, uh, I think an unprecedented attack on the personal ethics of the justices. Uh, a lot of it seems to be focused on Justice Thomas. And I, I should disclose I clerked for Justice Thomas long ago. And uh, I feel quite uh, loyal to him, but I don't think uh, that this is a Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal versus liberal idea. Um, I think it's a response by some extreme members of the Democratic Party who don't like the Supreme Court's decisions and the abortion affirmative action cases. They don't like the idea that uh, the Supreme Court is finally controlled by 
people who don't want to legislate from the bench in the way the Warren court did and justices, uh, even under the uh, Berger and Rehnquist courts, continue to do, continue to. So I think this is really an assault on judicial independence. Uh, and the, the Congress does have some significant powers over the judiciary. For example, the Constitution leaves up to Congress completely whether to have any courts below the Supreme Court. Any lower courts or trial court, the Congress can decide how many courts to have, how many judges they should have. Um, the Constitution also only talks about the Chief Justice. It doesn't say there has to be any specific number of justices on the court, and the Congress has changed the number over time. We have had nine justices since 1869, but before that, it would fluctuate, I think, uh, up and down. Uh, it's not only been above nine once uh, for a short period of time. What would it take to change that? Number? Just an act of Congress. So, uh, you know, the Judiciary Act is the, the majority original, vote. Yeah, just the just the, as just normal legislation. It's just Congress has to pass a statute, has to be signed by the president, just like any other bill. Um, but I think, and you're right, Scott. I think you, your your uh, your intuition is correct. There has to be some limit on that. And I think that limit is Congress can't tell the courts how they do their job. Congress can decide how many judges are going to be. Congress can decide how many courts are going to be. But what I don't think Congress could do is say, oh, if you're going to make a decision, it can't be by a simple majority. You have to have a super majority, right? You can't uh, vote on anything five to four. If you're going to do anything, it has to be six to three. I don't think Congress can do that. I don't think Congress could say, uh, if you're going to strike down an act of Congress, it has to be seven to two. I don't think Congress can okay. interfere with the essential function, inherent function of the judiciary, just like Congress can't interfere with the inherent functions of the presidency either. Like, I don't think Congress can- What about term limits on, on, on Supreme Court justices? So right now, the Constitution has no term limits. Uh, the Constitution- uh, the founders cared so much about uh, preserving the institutional independence of the Supreme Court that they said that justices could only be removed through impeachment. And they had to receive the same pay and they had to have their jobs for life. Uh, right? They're almost as powerful as university professors, these guys. Almost. <laughs> so I don't think they make as much. <laughs> that's definitely true. And so the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so the uh, idea of term limits is certainly possible. Uh, most states have some kind of term limits on their Supreme Court justice. Some states, many states have uh, age limits too, right? If you hit a certain age, uh, or you have to retire within a certain number of years, for example, from the courts, state Supreme Courts, some state Supreme Courts. But it would take a constitutional amendment to put in anything like a term limit or an age maximum. Uh, one thing I've always thought is, well, uh, if it's so important to have those for the justices, why not have them for the Congress and the presidency too? Let's have the, why not have the same term limits and the same well, age maximums I, I for have all to admit, three I, branches? I'm, I'm a new, I'm newly, <laughs> yes, I'm newly a believer in term limits after what I saw uh, in my brief stint in Washington, as I'm sure you, what would you, uh, what you would can you identify make it though? with. You're, you're also a doctor, so what, what, what would you make the uh, term limit oh, or I'm age Oh, I'm not maximum? sure I would have, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I personally would not be, uh, not that my opinion matters, but I, I don't think that age limit uh, is is as big of an issue as term limits. I'm not sure we see a lot of old people, very old people, running for the first time for office. I think the certainly judging from what we see in Congress, uh, people that are cognitively impaired are there uh, overstaying their uh, age of, of of capability because they've been there for decades. I, I think the issue is really term limits. And I think there are other benefits to term limits that I never understood because I always thought, well, we have a democracy, just vote these people out. That's the system of checks and balances. Uh, but of course, that didn't uh, really take into account the advantages of the incumbent yeah. Uh, that we all, uh, you know, are very familiar with these days. Uh, so, uh, in the interest of time, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up and have you back. Uh, oh, of course, again, but uh, because I I, I really want to take a look at this constant mantra that we hear from both sides of the aisle that there is an ongoing quote threat to democracy in our system. Yet our democracy seems to be functioning pretty well. Uh, so, uh, but but I think uh, there certainly are potential threats to democracy, and uh, I, I think these need to be explored. We see them in action all over the world, uh, and we don't want to become a system like those <clears throat> where there is uh, no authentic democracy going on. Uh, I'm not sure we're at that level. But I, I think that's a discussion that is a very important one to have. Well, let me uh, wrap your point up there just to say we're not a democracy. We're not supposed to be a democracy. We're a republic. And so our constitution- We're a republic. Yeah, our constitution actually is quite anti-democratic in a lot of ways. Uh, but what we have been ignoring, uh, uh, because again of FDR and the New Deal and great society under LBJ and Obama and Obamacare, is the vital role that the states play in our system. Uh, that's what progressives have sought to attack ever since the days of Woodrow Wilson, is the uh, decentralized nature of our system, uh, which is a yes. way of diluting and containing democracy rather than uh, enhancing it. And of course, you're you're referring to the system of, of, of federalism, mm -hmm. really, which by, is our system by design. I have to say, I'm very... Uh, doubtful that we even have a federalist system anymore to to a great extent. Uh, when I look at other countries, the only one I can think of that is that I'm familiar with that is far more federalist is Switzerland, yeah, Switzerland. for instance, mm -hmm. where uh, there's something good about not knowing even who the president of Switzerland is. <laughs> I don't think most people know. I've no uh, they idea. rotate their president among seven different people. Cantons, yeah. It's not a very uh, powerful position. The cantons, the states of Switzerland, have almost all the power. They also use something that is used here in California, which are referenda uh, for a variety of, of sort of direct democracy, if you want to use that phrase, yeah. uh, engagements. So uh, yeah, we, we should, we'll have a separate podcast, I think, on you know federalism uh, and what's happened in the United States uh, to sort of uh, divert our system from what it was designed to be to what we're seeing today.
But John, I, I, I'll wrap it up there and uh, stop myself from talking. And uh, really want to express a lot of appreciation for, uh, for your time. And uh, always pleasure to learn from you. So thank you. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm always happy uh, to come back, especially if we're going to talk more about the Constitution and separation of powers and federalism. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Professor John Yu, check out his writings and interviews in the media, his podcast with our mutual friend and colleague, Professor Richard Epstein. And don't forget, subscribe to this show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts today. And I'll see you next time.